Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes North America. This episode of the Pardes Parsha podcast is sponsored by Susanna and Alan Caro in memory of Avi West, a brilliant educator and master teacher. This week's episode features Rabbi Elchanan Miller on Parshat Ekev. For the latest episode of the Pardes Parsha podcast, please visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, Rabbis Michael Henn and Elhanan Miller. Welcome, everyone, to the Pardes Parsha podcast from Jerusalem. I'm Michael Hatton, and with me today is... Elhanan Miller. And we are here to discuss some themes in this week's Parsha, which is Parshat Ekev. So we've been following the course of these Parshiot in the book of Devarim in Deuteronomy. And Moshe is, of course, addressing the people of Israel on the eve of his demise and giving them instruction that he feels is going to be helpful for them for the challenges ahead. Um, We've noted that, of course, the greatest challenge that looms is entering the land and possessing the land. And it's this vision of the land which really seems to color so much of Moshe's guidance his warnings, his inspiration. It's the land and the challenges that lie ahead that ultimately will decide the day. So in this week's Parsha, after Moshe recounts some other events, critical events, I guess pivotal events in Israel's history, such as the sin of the golden calf, he will again return to the theme of the land and the small section that we're focusing on today is a series of verses in chapter 11 that spell out the land and how the land of Canaan or the land of Israel is in contrast to other locations. So the verses in question, chapter 11, verse number 10 through number 12, I'll read it in English. The land that you are about to enter and possess is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come. There, the grain you sowed had to be watered by your own labors like a vegetable garden. But the land you are about to cross into and possess, a land of hills and valleys, soaks up its water from the rains of heaven. It is a land which the Lord your God looks after, on which the Lord your God always keeps his eye from year's beginning to year's end. So this is an interesting description. I think actually, Elchanan, that the translation sort of offered a bit of a slant that maybe wasn't in the original. Um, It said, it's not like the land of Egypt from which you have come. There the grain you sowed had to be watered by your own labors. Hmm. But the land you are about to cross into and possess soaks up its water from the rains of heaven. It sounds to me as if the translation, at least, which is the um, JPS, is arguing that somehow the land of Israel is to be preferred. Right. And that's obviously one interpretation. Um, I mean, I think obviously the Torah wants us to think that the land of Israel is to be preferred, but it's a conditional uh, clause And um, the verses you just read, Michael, uh, lead us straight into the very famous chapter of Vehayayin Shamoa, which is the second uh, section of the Shema uh, chapters that we read in our prayers. And there, this 
conditionality, right? This, this uh, dependence is uh, much more clear where God tells us in Vayayim Shamoa that only if we listen and obey God's uh, commandments will we merit uh, rain and will we merit uh, pros- prosperity in the land. And otherwise, um, we won't have it so, so lucky. So, yeah, you're right. I guess the translation here does uh, translate the labor as a, or, or um, the, the foot, um, watering the land with your foot as the labor of your, uh, yeah, your labor. Um, so how do, you, how do you see these verses? So it's interesting, you know, Rashi has this um, remarkable image he says, and again, he's working, I guess, in consonance with this translation that the Torah is spelling out the praise of the land. In Egypt, apparently, you have to work harder because you have to irrigate. And in the land of Israel, Rashi puts it, Ataya shen al you can sleep on your bed, the rain will fall and water everything, whether it's the hills or the valleys, whether it's the flat land or uh, some sort of elevation, it's all going to be taken care of by God's providence, right? In Egypt, you have to work. You got to take that water from the Nile, dig those irrigation channels, water those fields. And there's such an incredible uh, investment of, of human labor, which apparently is not the case in the land of Israel. Yes, but I think we agreed in our conversation just before this that Rashi is probably not exactly the pshat. It's not exactly what Moses wants us to think in this comparison between Egypt and the land of Israel. Um, He actually wants us to think that life in Egypt is easier or at least demands more passivity. Uh, Or as uh, life in Israel demands at least consciousness um, of your connection to God. But maybe it's also more labor intensive and uh, life isn't as self-evident or easy as it is in Egypt. Um, I do, however, understand where Rashi is coming from. So maybe before we go into a counter interpretation uh, or someone who argued with Rashi, we can think of where Rashi is coming from. Why does Rashi really want us to think that life in Israel is that much easier than in Egypt? Um, Why don't you start and maybe I'll give my thoughts. Okay. I mean, I think it's, it's sort of a theme in the Torah that the land is held out as some sort of a destination for which we will yearn, right? So the people are in Egypt and God speaks to Moshe and he will introduce the land as Eretz Zavat Chalavudvash, which obviously, uh, you know, a land flowing with milk and honey, which paints a picture of something which is desirable, something which is comfortable. Uh, something which is luxurious. And it's sort of that, I think, that vision which kind of carries the people of Israel through so much of their trials and tribulations in the wilderness. They, they hold out this image of a land that they will get to ultimately that's going to, I guess, answer all of their prayers. And Rashi's kind of working, or maybe Chazal, the rabbis that are Rashi's inspiration, are, are working with that dynamic that's already there. Right. And I think in the book of of Bamidbal or Numbers, uh, we have this recurring theme where the children of Israel continue to complain and to make these comparisons between Egypt and the land they're about to enter. And they try to portray Egypt as an objectively better place uh, to be than Israel. And maybe Rashi is actually saying it's not an objectively better place. Um, There should be a yearning, like you say. 
and maybe he's trying to correct this uh, this image in another way. And the Torah isn't really saying something about object objectivity. It's not that Egypt is objectively a better place. It's maybe an easier place, and that's not the same thing. Uh, so perhaps Rashi is trying to correct this uh, false nostalgia or this uh, yeah this rosy uh, memory that the children of Israel have of Egypt and say no actually things in Egypt weren't so great sometimes uh, you know we paint the past in very rosy colors and forget the difficulties and certainly in the book of Bamidbar we have this theme of the children of Israel forgetting the difficulties of Egypt and maybe Rashi's trying to correct that well, I really like that idea because in Sefer Devarim in general, I think we have this recurring question of how we remember things, how Moshe remembers things, how Moshe recounts things, and to sort of understand that maybe it's part of a larger theme of, you know, correction here that we want to remind the people of, you know, what the land really is about um, so that they don't get nostalgic for the brick pits, so to speak, right? So the emphasis is shifted to kind of present the land of Israel as, as preferable to the land of Egypt. Um, so that's a really interesting idea. Additionally, I, I think, you know, what you said earlier about a conditional is, is critical here. Listen, you know, if the rainfall happens when it's supposed to happen and it happens consistently every year, which is never the case, but if it were to be the case, as the promise is sort of extended in Vahayim Shamoa, then maybe an argument could be made that life in Israel could be, quote-unquote, easier because you don't have to do all of that work with irrigation that you would have to do in Egypt. But as you said, I mean, I think sort of the pshat, the straightforward reading is, is in a different direction. And maybe that's, you know, our opportunity to think about the opposing interpretation, which, uh, which here is offered by Nachmanides, by, by the Ramban. Right, so uh, Ramban um, maybe isn't as worried about us be being complacent, and he introduces um, a different attitude that says, no, actually, uh, the Torah does acknowledge the fact that life in Israel is more challenging, uh, and at least um, is a situation in which we're continuously dependent on God rather than dependent on our own labor or on our own efforts. So... Do you want to maybe expand a bit on Ramban's take of these yeah. verses? I mean, Ramban basically says, it's true, the land that you are entering is not like the land of Egypt because the land of Egypt has this incredible water resource called the Nile River. And the Nile River, more or less, is a dependable source of water. You can pretty much wake up in the morning and be assured that the Nile River is still there year to year, decade to decade, century to century. Yes, there will be occasional droughts, but for the most part, that water source is guaranteed. And that's an incredible, uh, incredible way to sort of relax the farmer's mind. At least that doesn't have to be worried about. You get to the land of Israel, right? And there is no water source like the Nile. There is, you know, a few little... Uh, you know, relatively insignificant sources of water, but for the most part, the topography here is different, and 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 the fertility of the land will depend on on the rains. So, what does Ramban want us to learn from this comparison? So, the way I think about it, I, I grew up in Toronto, um, and Toronto sits on a lake called Lake Ontario. Lake Ontario is just about the same size as the entire state of Israel, including Judea and Samaria. It's 
It's about 18,000 square kilometers. Israel is about, I don't know, 20,000. So 20,000 square kilometers. I'm sitting on a lake that's the size of this country, right? And if I turn on the water and I leave it running and I come back a week later, it'll still be running. And I come back a month later, it'll still be running. Come back 10 years later, the water will still be running. Up until desalination in this country, if I left the water on, it wouldn't be running anymore. It would run out, right? So I think the Rabban is trying to say when you are living in a climate or in a land that um, does not have a guaranteed source of water, then your existence is much more precarious. And that's, of course, incredibly challenging because you have to worry about it in a way that you don't worry about it in another place. Um, I think the Ramban also wants us to appreciate that that could be potentially uh, a source of inspiration, right? Uh, and, and the inspiration is that, as it were, we put our trust in God. That doesn't mean that we don't take initiative, but we sort of have to cultivate this relationship with God in a way that's perhaps not as urgent in a land where the water source is guaranteed. Right. I think clearly the Torah isn't just trying to give us farming advice. It's not just about giving advice to farmers how to prepare their crops and how to farm, but actually it's a theological message. And the theological message is that unlike any other country, any other land in the world, our existence in this land depends on our connection to God and the moral stance that we take in this country. It's very unusual. It's a miraculous existence that really depends on God's continuous uh, oversight, right? God's eyes are on this land from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And that consciousness that unlike any other country, we have this sense here that God is looking at us all the time. And that's the sense that I think the Torah wants to inculcate in us. Um, that there's something extraordinary in this land. It's not about rainfall and precipitation and right and 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 climate. It's more about uh, theology and morality. And I think this ties into another theme that goes. So wait, before you go on, I just want to say what I detected and what you said, and I think it was subtle, but it's so critical to kind of bring this out, is that you're suggesting this is not just about the message in the Torah to that generation entering the land, but to us as well. Of course, I think, yes, the Torah has a message that uh, you know, goes through time and, and, and place and is, and is universal and is eternal. I, I do see the Torah as having an eternal message. Um, I think it does tie into another theme that, we, that comes through very clearly in this, in this parasha, which is that our entry into the land is not because of our intrinsic righteousness and the intrinsic uh, goodness um, of our people, but number one, because of a promise that God gave us, that he's bound by, but number two, because of our continuous obedience um, and, and heeding God's word. And um, the Torah hammers this message again and again, right? It is not because of your righteousness that you inherited their land. And it says, it's, it's really this amazing word. Um, this idea that we are coming into a land and that life here bears with it huge responsibility. 
Um, so I think that responsibility here translate into the it translates into the agricultural realm, into the realm of existence, which was so on the minds of these uh, right farming farming communities or agricultural communities that, that developed in the land after it was inherited from its, the people that were here. Your thoughts, Michael? So I, I you know, I, I think that um, you hit the nail on the head. We have sort of this idea that you know, in a narrow sense, speaks to the farmer or the agriculturalist, but in the broadest possible sense, speaks to anyone who's living in this land. Um, and it's a challenging existence, and it's precarious, uh, and there are moments of grave anxiety. And those are opportunities to think about who we are and what we're doing, and our connection to God, and, and sort of the, the overwhelming responsibility, as you put it, of living in this land. Not, we're not I, I'm going to say not everyone is necessarily uh, up for the task. I'm going to remind us that back in the day when Avram and Lot parted ways in Genesis chapter 13, Lot chose to go to Mitzrayim. Oh, sorry, he chose to go to Kikar Hayarden, the area of Sidom, because it reminded him of the land of Egypt, which in his mind was Gan Hashem, Gan Hashem Ke'eretz Mitzrayim. So sort of the land of Egypt is, is holding out this image of the Garden of Eden, which is another way of saying when we're in that garden before being banished, it's, um, it is an existence which is uh, incredibly, uh, I guess, unexamined. We just sort of enjoy the luxuriant landscape. And to leave that environment is to realize that, that we have responsibility in the world. And uh, yeah, that's the land. Yeah. you. you I, 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 you mentioned that your upbringing in Toronto. My parents also made Aliyah from Toronto, so it's a place where I spent um, many a summer, including um, my bar mitzvah, which was actually this parsha. So I do have a, a close connection to this week's reading, um, and there's always a sense I think for anyone who made Aliyah. Now I myself was born in Israel, but I, I see this through my parents and through their friends who are who are olim that existence in Israel does come with this strong sense of responsibility, this strong sense of uh, destiny that um, many people who live here have. And it's very clear when you're outside of Israel, in my case, I spent so much, so much time in Toronto, but that's just one example, where life is in many ways much easier and it kind of, um, of course, every place has its challenges, right? But there isn't this existential um, weight, I would say, that, that living in Israel has. And um, so I think this, the, these verses resonate really with uh, a lot of people who made that move from Chutz Laaretz and from the diaspora and made that move to Israel and, and made their lives here. It's something that I definitely can identify with from my family, my surroundings. I, I couldn't agree with you more, uh, having made that move myself. And I think that's true for uh, many of our, our Pardes students as well that choose to live here, there is a sense of destiny and some sort of overwhelming meaning that is uh, part of that decision. Um, and it's, it's sort of remarkable to imagine that, that, that this very contemporary conversation actually has its roots in this incredibly ancient text uh, that still speaks to us today. Right. So just to summarize, I guess, destiny and responsibility. Those are the two themes that come out of these verses um, that you chose, Michael. And uh, thanks very much for inviting me to speak with you. Thank you very much. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. 
Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. 